Hello again, and thanks for listening. Before we get started, we want to warn listeners again about some adult content ahead in our discussion this week. We'll be talking about a graphic crime with descriptions of child abuse, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. Have you arrived in a verdict? We have. All right, I have a piece of collective verdict forms for you, from you, and bring them up to me. Six years in the making, last Monday, a jury finally reached a conclusion in the only trial to be held in the 2016 killing of 10-year-old Victoria Martins. We find the defendant guilty of child abuse with reckless disregard, resulting in the death of a child under 12 years of age as charged in count one. We find the defendant guilty of tampering with evidence as charged in count two. That's the voice of 2nd Judicial District Court Judge Cindy Leos reading what was probably the most anticipated verdict in the last decade in Albuquerque for Fabian Gonzalez's trial. Gonzalez faced nine charges in all, and a jury found him guilty on all counts. All of that after 13 days of testimony and 35 witnesses. It took those 12 jurors just under three hours to return a unanimous verdict. Gonzalez was convicted on charges including reckless abuse of a child resulting in death, multiple evidence tampering charges, and one count of conspiracy to tamper with evidence, or what you could otherwise say is making a plan to tamper with evidence. Last month, we did an episode of the podcast talking about the background of of this convoluted case and the significance of this trial taking place. We also talked a little bit about some of the opening elements of testimony. That episode is, of course, still available. It's a good primer about what we're all about to talk about here today. But this week, we wanted to get a lot more into how this trial played out. A lot more of the arguments that prosecutors and the defense made, the surprises along the way, also the verdict and the reaction to it, and importantly, what is next for Fabian Gonzalez and what's next for the other two defendants in the case? What's next for Jessica Kelly and Michelle Martins? Good afternoon. After a little more than two hours of deliberation, the jury came back unanimous. Fabian Gonzalez found guilty on all nine counts for his involvement in the death of 10-year-old Victoria Martins. So before we drill down into the trial, let's just give listeners some perspective, because I think sometimes we forget just how wrapped up we are in the news coverage of this. It becomes inside baseball to a lot of outside ears. We know so much about this, and maybe a lot of other folks don't know as much about this, but we mentioned this trial lasted three weeks. So Gabby, I wanted to ask you, how much of this did you watch or rewatch in this case? Uh, all of it. Um, you know, I think like a lot of us in the newsroom, we were waiting so long for this to happen. Um, six years in the making this trial was. So, you know, I was helping Ariana Kraft, our dayside reporter who was doing news stories on the trial every single day. And I was looking through her scripts, but also watching um, the testimony because Chris, you live streamed every day of this trial. So you were very much paying attention to all the details. Notably for us as KRQE, this is the first time that we've ever live streamed an entire trial um, from gavel to gavel and had sort of commentary along with it. So it was kind of a historic way of covering a trial for us online um, with our KRQE digital studio. One question that came up that I wanted to just ask you high level 
Was this trial what you expected? I honestly didn't really know what to expect because the details of this case, as we discussed in our previous episode, changed over the years. So I think I was really just interested too to see what evidence would be presented what witnesses would say that maybe we hadn't heard up to this point and how the defense was going to argue Fabian's role in all of this and try to untie or poke holes in some of the state's argument. We're on record receiving an expert versus Fabian Gonzalez, CR 2016-961. So let's just start from the beginning here, the case itself in a nutshell. Victoria Martins, she's 10 years old, a girl living with her mom in a Northwest Albuquerque apartment. She's found dead, dismembered, and on fire in her bathtub in the early morning hours of August 24th, 2016. Three people are arrested. That's mom, Michelle Martins, Michelle Martin's boyfriend, Fabian Gonzalez, and then also Fabian's cousin, Jessica Kelly. Michelle and Fabian had been dating for just roughly a month before Victoria was killed. They met in an online dating site. Jessica Kelly had just been out of prison for about a week and was essentially temporarily living or couch surfing at the Martins apartment. Former neighbors of Michelle and Victoria Martins took the stand today. Sabrina Padilla lived underneath the Martins apartment in 2016. They were up all hours of the night. The music music was going um, just in and out on on the balcony, talking, partying. Initially, those three people were accused of drugging, raping, and killing Victoria. In 2018, evidence proved that was all false. Cell phone records showed Fabian and Michelle were not actually at the home when Victoria was killed, but Jessica Kelly was, and she was high on meth and admittedly paranoid. Prosecutors say DNA evidence corroborates Jessica Kelly's story that an unknown man walked into the Martins apartment that evening on August 23rd, strangled Victoria to death, and then threatened Jessica Kelly to clean up the crime scene or else. This defendant did not personally strangle Victoria, but he created a danger that led to her death. And he didn't hesitate to tamper with the evidence So we mentioned talking about the arguments that were made in the case. The defense is pretty easy to summarize. They believe Fabian Gonzalez had nothing to do with Victoria's death, and they're blaming Jessica Kelly. Jessica's plan was both simple and crazy. She needed to get rid of the body. She was strong, but she couldn't carry the body. So she would cut up the body into lighter pieces. It would take about an hour for a person to cut up the body this way, but Jessica never finished. She'd only been out of prison for about a week and was staying at the Barton's apartment temporarily, basically a deal that Fabian had established. The defense believes she killed Victoria, acted alone, dismembered the girl's body in an effort to conceal the crime. On the other side, the prosecution, they're really out there trying to prove two things in this trial. One, that Fabian Gonzalez lived a dangerous lifestyle and made decisions that created a danger for Victoria's life, eventually leading to her death. The second thing they're arguing, that Fabian Gonzalez helped cover up the crime scene. To make that case, prosecutors leaned heavily on Jessica Kelly. Again, she was the only other known adult at the home when Victoria was killed. She was taking care of Victoria or watching her when she was murdered. In the last episode, we told you about how Kelly told jurors about the unknown man who walked in asking for Favo and killed Victoria. So tell us everything he said when he came out of the room. 
he said that Fabian up, he knows he did. And um, for there's a mess in there that me and Fabian have to clean up, and if not, it's going to be our lives and my kids' lives. And you had never seen this person before? No. After that threat, Kelly claims she waited for Gonzalez to get home, and then they came up with a plan to cover up Victoria's death together. She says she told Fabian what happened. They both panicked and agreed to conceal the crime from Michelle, Victoria's mother, and that they both dismembered the girl's body and cleaned up the crime scene. So that's half of the prosecution's argument about what Gonzalez did. So the other half of the prosecution's argument, they also leaned on Kelly for was to help establish Fabian's lifestyle with a story. Remember, prosecutors suggested that Fabian Gonzalez had this dangerous lifestyle. So that gets highlighted in this fist fight that Gonzalez gets involved in with a cousin at a barbecue party just two days before Victoria's murder. This is on a Sunday evening. That fistfight, according to prosecutors, led to Fabian lobbing threats at his cousin, Amanda Padilla. Prosecutors say the fight opened the door to Fabian being further subject to violence and retaliation, and that that may be connected to Victoria's death. Did the defendant end up coming to this barbecue? Yeah, he ended up showing up. What happened when he got there? Um... Amanda's son came and told him that he had to leave. Uh, Fabian got an attitude with Ben. Ben went and told Amanda about uh, Fabian not wanting to leave. She came out and a fight started. She she ended up hitting him. Where did she hit him? In his face, in front of the kids and everybody. Words were exchanged. Uh, he told him that told Amanda that he's coming back with his brothers and. Amanda told him, come on then, you know. What does it mean to say I'm coming back with my brothers? How did that, what um, did you take that as? Like they were going to come back and they were going to fight. That's how I took it. That established Fabian Gonzalez's alleged role in this whole case, from his lifestyle to his actions the night of Victoria's murder. In the early morning hours of the 23rd, so this is Tuesday, just after midnight, were you and the defendant using methamphetamine together? Yes. <clears throat> Where did that methamphetamine come from? I had it. Where did you use it? Uh, we used it in the living room and then in um, Michelle's bathroom. So aside from Kelly's testimony, throughout the trial, the prosecution peppered in testimony from first responders across several different days. So it wasn't just all in the beginning all in one fell swoop. Sergeant Harold Sennett with Albuquerque Police testified actually toward the end of the prosecution's case. He was one of the first arriving officers who was also the first person to speak with Fabian and Michelle on scene that evening. Uh, I was told by a male and female who I thought didn't live at the apartment they were inside of that they had a friend who had assaulted them and that friend was back at their apartment and that they had a young daughter at the apartment as well. Did that child become a priority for you once you heard that information? Absolutely. Senate then spoke of finding Victoria's body. Did you find this child? I eventually found the child. I searched her bedroom for her and she was not in there. And then I searched the bathroom and I found her in the bathtub. What did you see? I saw that she was dismembered and she was on fire. At least three times during the trial, prosecutors played the lapel video showing officers finding Victoria dead in the bathtub. And I did notice Harold Sennett when they were playing this 
his own lapel video from arriving on scene that evening and finding Victoria in court. He was looking away from the screen. His eyes were closed and he let out a long sigh. You could really tell it was difficult for him to relive these moments. And he said as much of that on the stand. It seemed like a theme throughout the prosecution, almost this continued kind of reminder about the horror of the crime. Prosecution really went back and forth between stories about Fabian's character to then Victoria's character and then factual testimony about what happened to the girl and the physical evidence in the case seemed to be this sort of ping ponging effect to remind people about all of these elements throughout the entirety of the prosecution. Sergeant Sennett's testimony was towards the end of the prosecution's case, as Gabby mentioned. It served as sort of a punctuation to all of this kind of just how horrible this crime was. Did you personally perform a data extraction of phones belonging to Michelle Martin's Fabian Gonzalez and Jessica Kelly? Yes, I did. Kyle Hartsock also played a key piece of testimony in this trial for the prosecution. He's now a deputy commander with Albuquerque Police and someone we've had on the podcast here before. He's done a lot of work investigating suspects' digital footprints here in Albuquerque. Hartsock got involved in this case as a sort of special investigator back in 2017. He was basically asked to look into the cell phone records of Jessica Kelly, Michelle Martins, and Fabian Gonzalez. Hartsock took the stand detailing the digital forensic evidence that led to the district attorney's office in this case, dropping the initial murder charges against all three suspects back in 2018. In short, Fabian and Michelle weren't home during Victoria's murder. Before it happened, Hartsock described the couple not even being home when Victoria was coming home from school that day. This message is incoming to Michelle Martin's phone from a contact saved as Amanda Bailey's mom. The message reads, hi, this is Amanda Bailey's mom. We're neighbors. Victoria is trying to get a hold of you. And you said the time of that was 4.35 p.m.? 4.35 p.m. And she's still at Lake Drive, Michelle Martins? At 4.35 p.m., she is still down in the South Valley. So that was Hartsock reading text messages from a neighbor to Victoria's mom. Michelle actually texted two different neighbors that day checking in on Victoria. Some of the testimony alleged that Jessica Kelly was supposed to pick up Victoria from the bus that day. Amanda Bailey's mom replies at 4.45 p.m. Okay, she went home. I guess someone is there now. That someone Victoria was left with, we now know was Jessica Kelly. One of the things that also stood out to me in the second week of testimony was hearing from all of Victoria's neighbors at the time from her apartment complex. The prosecution called nine different neighbors to the witness stand. The defense called another four, each of whom were in the apartment complex back in 2016 and saw Victoria the day of her murder, which was also her 10th birthday. A lot of those neighbors testified that Victoria seemed bubbly early on in the day. She was inviting people to her birthday party. We also heard from the neighbor who saw Victoria after school when no one picked her up from the bus stop. She kind of like yelled over to us and said, hey, um, nobody picked me up from the bus stop. So um, we called her over and she uh, I told her, let's call. Let's give your mom a call and see where she is. She tried to call her mom and her mom didn't answer. So I said, um, uh, she was carrying a lot of things, so she was carrying like a um, like a Tupperware thing. I think that she took cupcakes that day to school in, and like her backpack. So she got all her stuff. She uh, put it in my kitchen, and um, I texted her mother. 
That was one neighbor, Amanda Wilson, testifying her and others really highlighting the normality of Victoria's life before Fabian. But then once he appeared, her world was really flipped upside down, according to those neighbors. Again, getting to the prosecution's point that I think they wanted to make the jury feel essentially, as Prosecutor Greer Staley said, if Fabian didn't come into Victoria's life, their belief is that Victoria would not have been killed. Prior to Fabian, neighbors said that they didn't notice Michelle Martin's ever doing drugs. She kept a clean apartment and her kids seemed happy. Um, I really had noticed that the couple weeks before this incident, um, Victoria looked very disheveled. At, um, at the bus stop. She wasn't ready for school like she normally was. Um, and she just appeared to be just very reserved, um, not talking as much um, to the other kids. So yes, I did notice a difference. You described her as looking hungover? Um, yes. I also noticed hearing from neighbors, you know, a lot of these people had kids of their own. This is a working class, you know, families who are living there. They talked about seeing the Martins family. We know Michelle lived there with her two children, Victoria and her brother, and they just at the time moved into a larger apartment, a three bedroom, according to a neighbor. One neighbor said Michelle was working two jobs and seemed to be doing well at the time. Uh, Michelle seemed really busy with her jobs, and I was actually really happy for them because it seemed like she was doing really good. So while neighbors describing Michelle and Victoria before and after Fabian Gonzalez was one big piece of the testimony in this case, I think another major element here is DNA. And this is what I would say was the part of the prosecution's evidence that for me, while hearing it, it did not really become clear until the very end of the case. There's really actually little DNA evidence in this, as we found, that conclusively ties Fabian Gonzalez to any of the crimes that happened here. Fabian's DNA was found on a single sock, which had Victoria's body tissue on it. It was found in a laundry basket with parts of her body in it. His DNA was also found on a towel in a washing machine with just a small amount of Victoria's blood and a probable mixture of his DNA mixed in with that. Fabian's DNA wasn't found on anything else, including Victoria's body, which of course he is accused of dismembering. Two main takeaways from the DNA evidence that was presented in this case. One is that low levels of male DNA were found all over items that were tested. Investigators couldn't conclusively say that it was Fabian's, but emphasized in closing arguments that Fabian was the only male in the house at the time of her death. Because what did she find there? Male DNA. And who's the only male in the apartment? The defendant. He's the only male that could put that DNA on that bag. The second takeaway, unknown male DNA, central to the state's case, was found on Victoria's back and neck. Too small a quantity, though, to conclusively say whose DNA it is. But prosecutors could and did eliminate Fabian and all the other male DNA standards that they had to test in this case, like the first responders and all the male DNA that could have come into contact with Victoria's body that day. But they did not test all of her schoolmates and things like that. No, what I'm asking you, Mr. Ernst, is will your client be willing to appear on Zoom tomorrow? We mentioned earlier the surprises in this case. The big one, obviously, on day 11 of testimony, just as the state is maybe less than an hour of testimony away from wrapping its case, a bombshell. Fabian tests positive for COVID-19. 
This upends the entire trial with some big concern about if the case could be finished or whether the jury would even have to be dismissed and maybe start this whole thing all over again. Remember in January, this was actually supposed to take place, this trial, a COVID exposure delayed it all the way out to starting in July. So after Fabian's counsel tests negative for COVID, basically, the court has to come up with a plan. Judge Cindy Leos didn't want to see this case crash and burn with a mistrial. I think there's a way that we, we can continue to trap. We've just got to figure out the way to do it. I 100% um, agree with the state. I know defense is interested in finishing this trial as well. Um, so I think we're all going to have to be a little more flexible and creative about how we're going to get this done so that we can get it done. I don't want to declare this trial at this point, and I'm not willing to. But even with that, perseverance, if you will, from the judge. Meanwhile, Fabian was not willing to waive his right to be present in the courtroom, even with COVID. Yeah, I got a quick lesson in the Sixth Amendment here of the Constitution as this was playing out. A defendant has the right to confront witnesses in their own criminal trial here per our Constitution. And while there have been some virtual hearings and court proceedings due to COVID in the last couple of years, that's usually decided and agreed upon by all the parties before proceedings start. In this case, Fabian Gonzalez, when he got COVID, refused to waive his right to appear in person during the rest of his trial, creating a challenging situation. So would he be willing to continue his trial remotely? Him being no. remote? No? His defense said at the time he was running a fever of about 102.9 that day. So Judge Leos sent in a request to the state Supreme Court asking if they'd allow Fabian Gonzalez to appear in court in person, COVID positive, in essentially a glass box with an air purifier, double KN95 masks. And then we heard late in the day, the New Mexico Supreme Court agreed to the glass box idea. That agreement actually came in moments as the judge was about to dismiss everybody for the day. Let me see if I've heard anything yet. Then all of a sudden she checks her email and she goes, it got approved. I think it got approved. The glass box idea. It's approved. I think about this glass box thing. And first of all, that comes to mind, it's never been done before in New Mexico's courts. As long as, as far as we know, um, I, I would be interested if anybody can find a case where a glass box was used, but also just even the idea of a COVID positive defendant in a courtroom, that's crazy when you consider what has happened over the last two years, how we've all decided to make all of these changes to avoid contact and then literally we're about to bring a COVID positive defendant in to continue this court hearing. It's just a wild scenario to think of. Particularly in New Mexico, when we've done a lot of virtual, you know, court proceedings lately due to that exact reason. But right. there, this had been, you could tell there was just so much at stake here. Yeah. The, the prosecution was almost done. We had already been through, you know, two, three weeks of testimony six years in the making, this judge and these attorneys were not wanting this delayed. I can't imagine had that actually happened, it would have been comfortable for Fabian Gonzalez at all. Um, at the last minute, he decided essentially as, as he's facing the first day of testimony and closed in this plexiglass box in another room, he decided to waive his in-person appearance. And there he was appearing through the rest of trial testimony wise. Uh, on video conference via Google Meet. They get it all figured out. 
So the question becomes, how is the defense now going to argue its case? Uh, They did it all without Fabian in the courtroom. Eight witnesses in total across one afternoon and then the following morning. Are we ready? bring in the jury. So remember, Fabian is claiming he had nothing to do with all of this, that Jessica Kelly acted alone, and the defense's goal was to make Jessica Kelly look worse, but also to try and dismiss the idea of Fabian's so-called dangerous lifestyle. Remember that barbecue fight that was talked about earlier when Fabian Gonzalez got punched in the face, he got a black eye and left that barbecue feeling angry and embarrassed. The cousin who Fabian got in a fight with there was Amanda Padilla. Did you host a party on the Sunday before Victoria's death, a barbecue party? Yes. Did Fabian go? He did end up showing up, but he was not invited. Was there a fight? Yes, there was. She took the witness stand for the defense and downplayed the fight, which again spoke to the state's argument in this case that the unknown man looking for Fabian Gonzalez was potentially seeking revenge and that idea that Fabian had enemies that placed Victoria in danger. From what you know, does that fight at the barbecue have anything to do with the death of Victoria? No, 100% no. <laughs> it, was, it ended that night. It was honestly... Padilla also said Fabian was, quote, all talk. Did you get text message threats from Fabian that entire night? Yes, I did, but I didn't take him seriously. Um, <laughs> Fabian has usually been all talk, like pretty much. <laughs> and then he's my cousin. I honestly knew he was under the influence of a narcotic and drunk. Fabian's brother, Joseph Gonzalez, was another notable witness, also probably the most combative witness we saw on the stand the entire trial. The defense tried to use his testimony to discount some things Fabian Gonzalez did after the party. Prosecutors allege that Joseph Gonzalez and Fabian, his brother, had multiple phone calls after that barbecue, allegedly planning to get back at Padilla after the fight. And what did you say about his proposal that you get involved? Negative. I told him they were just a waste of time. There's, it's, we're not going to do that. What happened was unfortunate, but regardless, it's, you're not going to go back over there. No one's going to go take it any further. It's, it was a waste of time. It, it, they, they, it was beneath him. I told him. It's exactly what I told him. Joseph Gonzalez also testified that he never sold his brother drugs and instead tried to help him out with work and a place to stay when needed. But we mentioned those tense moments. Prosecutors basically tried to highlight alleged connections to gangs between Joseph Gonzalez and his brothers. They showed older photos of Joseph with his brothers to the jurors. Who's that middle person there? That's me. And who's this person right here? Um, that's Marquise. And is he throwing up a TC right here with his hands? Negative. Negative? Negative. Let's talk about this picture, 409. Who's in this picture? My two brothers and someone that's no longer with us. And they're all wearing the same hat? They were funny like that. They like to color coordinate. You can see the, the plaid red shorts as well. They like wear red? They like red. They like red. And they like that C hat? Do you know why they would wear that hat? I just told you you'd like to color coordinate. They just like to color coordinate? Would it surprise you to know that your brother Adrian thought that these, or told police that these hats were Cubs hats? Then that's a, 
I, I couldn't tell you what so what the relevance is with the hats. These aren't your brother's wearing gang hats. Let's look at for And I'll note, this was the only witness to take the stand where prosecutors actually had to object to the answers that were given by the witness after prosecutors asked questions. It's very rare to see that, right? Prosecutors are usually objecting to something that defense attorneys have asked a witness. In this case, prosecutors ask a question, get an answer and say objection to try to cut off the answer. It was clearly very uncomfortable and clear that Joseph and prosecutors saw things very differently. Um, have you speak your name, please. Michelle Martin. Thank you. The defense's final witness and the highly anticipated testimony that we were all waiting for also came on that last day. Michelle Martin's, Victoria's mother, took the stand. She already took a plea deal in this case with the agreement to cooperate in the continued case, but notably, she was a defense witness here, not a state witness. Was state ever abusive towards Victoria? No. Okay. Did he discipline her? No. Okay. Would you allow him to discipline her? No. Um, could you tell if Victoria liked Fabian? She did. Michelle Martins also testified that she did not do drugs. We've mentioned before how investigators and even her attorney, Gary Mitchell, has gone on record describing Michelle Martins as very suggestible, which also speaks to what investigators say was her false confession the first night that she was arrested. She was interrogated for hours the night of her arrest and the night Victoria was killed and left that interrogation basically admitting to being involved in Victoria's murder, but police, DNA evidence, and digital forensic evidence would later discount that false confession. So Michelle Martins takes the stand on that final day of testimony in court, saying much of what we already knew. She was with Fabian at a relative's house the evening of Victoria's murder. That was Fabian's relative. She was texting neighbors and her mom at one point to pick up Victoria from the bus stop. One thing notably out of her testimony, perhaps this is not something that the defense wanted. It was a question about whether or not Fabian or she made the decision to leave Victoria with Jessica Kelly that night. Who made the decision to leave Victoria with Jessica the last time when, when you guys left? That was me. Thank you. Did Fabian ever make decisions about Victoria? He made that when he, he talked me into leaving her with her. He talked you into Yes. It. So he, he took part in that? Decision. Yes, he did. Okay. And, but it, wasn't it your decision to make? Yes, it was. Didn't you always make the decisions about Victoria? Yes. Okay. And in hindsight, worst decision in life? Yes. Michelle Martins also said that she sympathized with Jessica Kelly at first because she knew that Kelly didn't have anywhere to stay after getting out of prison, but later said that she was fed up, that Michelle Martins also said on the stand that she did not tell her parents about her new boyfriend, Fabian, and said she'd wanted Jessica out of the house. When it came to Michelle Martins describing how she found out that her daughter was dead, she says it was Jessica Kelly who attacked her and Fabian with a clothing iron that night after they went to bed. So she says she went into Victoria's room so that she and her daughter could escape when she was being attacked by Kelly. And that's when Michelle Martin says she could not find Victoria in her bedroom. So I opened the door and I asked Jessica, I said, where, where, the, where the is my daughter? I told her exact words. 
and she still didn't answer me. She started beating me up again. She started pulling my hair. She started beating me up, kicking me. And as she's doing that, I'm making my way out of the apartment. And right by the door, I had a picture frame, and she hit me with the picture frame. And I, I eventually made my way out, out the door, and I squashed her hand in the door, and she let go of my hair. And then she said, by the way, your daughter's dead. Police were called. Michelle and Fabian waited outside for police to arrive. Jessica Kelly jumps from the balcony, hurts her ankle, and then the three of them are all taken into custody and arrested that night. So all of this said, closing arguments then take almost four hours. Prosecutors save that closing argument to wrap the entire case together. Your job here today is to determine if that defendant set this whole thing in motion. If he created this transformation of Victoria's world into this place where something terrible was going to happen. And it was obvious something was going to happen. And the defense, for their closing argument, clearly they wanted to highlight what they were afraid of, the emotion of this case. They wanted to remind jurors to look at the evidence, not just what happened to Victoria. And my fear is that emotion, the emotion all of us feel by what happened to Victoria can overwhelm our common sense, our reason, because reason would tell you this is not a complicated case. It's actually fairly easy to solve, but emotion can overwhelm that. After just a few hours of deliberation, again, less than three, the verdict comes back right at noon on Monday. All right, I'm going to have the defendant go ahead and stand. We find the defendant guilty of child abuse with reckless disregard resulting in the death of a child under 12 years of age as charged in count one. We find the defendant guilty of tampering with evidence as charged in count two. That verdict left no room for ambiguity. Fabian's reaction, we couldn't see it. He was still COVID positive and isolated in that plexiglass box that Judge Leos had constructed in the other room, out of view of the gallery and out of view of the camera. We find the defendant guilty of tampering with evidence is charged in count six. But there was some verdict reaction that we saw in the courtroom after the decision, or rather I should say, Gabby, you saw it. You were inside the courtroom when the verdict was delivered, right? Yes. We find the defendant guilty of conspiracy to commit tampering with evidence as charged in count nine. Who could you see? I could see the jurors come in. Ten women, two men. Found that interesting. Uh, I could see Victoria's grandparents, Pat and John Martins, who we know over the years. They were sitting front row, essentially. And then Albuquerque Police Sergeant Joshua Brown was sitting directly behind them. So those were the people that I recognized for sure. How did the Martins family react? Victoria's grandmother immediately just drops her head and starts sobbing. Like Victoria's family was just in tears. I think tears of relief. Sergeant Joshua Brown, also I could see him wiping away tears. Um, He immediately got up and after the you know, jury was dismissed and everyone got to stand up. He went and hugged the grandparents. We filed into the hallway and uh, the APD sergeant, Victoria's family, they're all hugging the prosecutors, you know, 
it felt like to them, it was some sense of closure and maybe a sense of relief. You tried to talk to them, but it sounds like they didn't want to speak immediately after the verdict, right? Right. Uh, we had already heard from the district attorney's office that prosecutor Greer Staley and James Grayson, the two who handled this case, uh, wanted to, no matter what the verdict was, they wanted to meet with Victoria's family first before speaking publicly. So they all walked across the street, essentially, to the district attorney's office. Um, I, I asked them, you know, on their way out, I, I made a comment to Victoria's grandmother. I said, you know, I'm not sure if you remember me, but I know this has been a long time coming for you all. And she was crying and nodding her head. Yes. And she just said, yes, it has. And then I asked the detective as he was walking away, you know, is there anything you'd like to say, Joshua Brown? And he looked over at me and our camera and said, just that we have justice for Victoria. You also talked to the attorneys for Fabian Gonzalez afterwards. What did they tell you? Stephen Aarons said he was surprised, he said, by how quickly the jury came back with a verdict. We're disappointed. You know, we thought they had heard that the uh, DNA pretty well exonerated him. But I think just the horror of, of the case, um, they were ready to rule within, within a couple of hours. And it, it's hard to get past your emotions in a case like this. And I think that's, those emotions overwhelmed this jury. He said Fabian was in shock. At this point, Fabian's married. He has a child now, from what we understand. His wife was in the courtroom as well. I know his, his wife uh, is very upset and distraught. Um, he, he left pretty quickly in that glass door, so I haven't had a chance to talk to him yet. And then at one point, Stephen Aaron said, I think these jurors knew what they wanted to do from the beginning. It's shocking that they came back so quickly, but it's clear all 12 were ready from the moment they walked in there. They knew what they wanted to do. And, uh, you know, I, I, I understand their feelings. He stands by the idea that Jessica Kelly acted alone and that Fabian did not have anything to do with Victoria's murder or trying to conceal the crime. And he said they plan to appeal this conviction. You also got a chance to talk to prosecutors after this. This was, though, not immediately after. So you're not getting that initial emotional reaction. Obviously, a, a calculation on their part. Came back, did an interview. Um, it seemed like about two hours, about an hour and a half or so after the verdict. What was the takeaway? What did prosecutors tell you that, that stuck with you? They said, you know, that they felt good. They, they felt that this was a win. I think we're just really happy that the jury got it right. Um, you know, they had to sit through three weeks of testimony, some of it technical and a little tedious, but they really hung with us and we're just really grateful for them. They felt like they wanted to hold everybody in this case accountable. So I, of course, asked about, you know, is this truly justice when you've got this fourth suspect out there that the state believes actually killed Victoria? And they said, you know, while we hope that the investigation would lead to this fourth suspect, and we do believe there is a fourth suspect, you know, we'll take this as a win and, and we're happy with this result. You know, I think that this is a big moment, especially for the family. I think they feel a sense of justice. We are always hopeful that the investigation will yield this other person that we have um, charged in the case. 
But for now, I think that this is a really great result. And so we're very happy about that. So Gonzalez is taken out of the courtroom immediately after the verdict. Prosecutors asked for him to be remanded into custody. He's been actually out on release for the last three years, essentially living at home on an uh, ankle on, monitor, on an ankle monitor on house arrest since 2019. So this is a big change of pace for him. He's back behind bars, um, just like the night of his initial arrest. What is next for Fabian Gonzalez? Well, that is sentencing. That may not happen, though, for two to three months. We already have an idea, though, of what he is facing. Gonzalez, who is 37 right now, he turns 38 in just a couple months, is nine counts that he was convicted of. One being reckless child abuse resulting in death, seven counts of evidence tampering, and one count of conspiracy to tamper with evidence. The charge carrying the most time with it, reckless child abuse resulting in death, is a felony capital offense with a mandatory 18-year sentence. Then seven counts of tampering with evidence, each carrying a three-year sentence, and a final charge of conspiracy to commit tampering with evidence, which carries a year and a half sentence. So all told, he now faces 18 to 40 years in prison. The judge in this case does have some discretion with how much time he will serve. And Stephen Aarons did tell me that he should get good time. They will argue for good time that was spent on his ankle monitor, which is about three years. So Fabian Gonzalez will likely get sentenced in October. Another what's next, though, is for Michelle Martins. She has to be sentenced now that Fabian's trial is over. That's something that's been put off since 2018 when she took her plea deal. They haven't set a sentencing date yet as of recording this episode. But recall that she did plead to intentional child abuse resulting in death. She agreed to serve 12 to 15 years in prison. Not entirely sure if she's eligible for good time with that charge. Uh, she has been in prison, though, essentially since 2016, or she's been in jail, really, behind bars since 2016 when the arrest happened. So if she gets credit for all of her time served and perhaps good time. She's looking at maybe six to 12 years that she's already served. We'll see what happens when her sentencing date gets set. The other defendant, Jessica Kelly, not much happens to her from here on out that's different with her testimony. She doesn't get anything extra out of that. Her plea deal already took place. She pled to one count of reckless child abuse resulting in death, a nonviolent felony. She'll serve 44 years, but she is eligible for good time. So that means she will likely only serve half of that time. And good time is calculated day by day. So if you have a good day, you're given two days service. Nothing takes away the good time you've already served. There's no waiting to find out how much good time will get. she'll get credited for. It's on a day by day sort of thing. The search remains for the fourth unknown person. We may never know who exactly killed Victoria or why, which is I think part of the reason why this case just remains so intriguing, even though you have now adjudication, the completion of all three of the known defendants in this case, there's still, according to the prosecution, someone out there. I did ask Greer Staley, is there any possibility that this fourth person does not exist? And her answer was, anything is possible. Hmm but they trust the detective work that Rich Lewis did in this case that they say does suggest there was a fourth unknown male. Man, it's been six yeah. years. It's just crazy to think about uh, how long it took to get this point. I just remember how different things were in 2016 and, and again, also how different the case was. So 
uh, it's a pretty, pretty big moment to see the end of this here. Yes, it has been a long time coming and we know there will be potentially a lot of questions that still remain in everyone's mind about this case. We appreciate you guys listening to this case. Hopefully it gives you a little bit more illumination toward what happened throughout that three weeks of testimony. A ton of witnesses, more than 500 pieces of evidence were logged into the case. Thank you for listening to this podcast here. If you want to reach out, you have any other questions, maybe it's about this case or other podcast topics, feel free to email me. I'm at chris.mckee, krqe.com and also at chrismckeetv on social media. So that's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And I'm gabrielle.burkhart at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.